Happy Saturday, everyone. Uh, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and addict. I'd like to first say it's tremendous to be here. It's a wonderful source of comfort to me, and it's great to be able to comfort others. Uh, there are three things I'd like to uh, mention. I'd like to thank Elmo for asking me to speak. And that has definitely aided in keeping me sober over the past year. I'd also like to thank uh, my sponsors for um, making it possible for me to be here. And I would also like to welcome the newcomers who are so important to me in my recovery. You know, I had lots of fear about attending the first IDAA, which I did two years ago in uh, San Antonio. But you people made it uh, much more comfortable and much easier for me to find my way back into the uh, pro professional uh, group to which I belong. <coughs> you know, for me, recovery is a process and not a concluded event like so many of us feel and which helps some of us back into relapse. You know, that 28 days was just a wonderful beginning for me. And uh, that, that's where I learned to live life. <coughs> you know, this program is a program that works. And it works only when I work it. You know, it's the title of the meeting, how it works. I know that it works. I have some proof that it works. But it's none of my business as to how it does work as long as I continue practicing the, the principles of the program in my daily affairs. You know, it's the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, the honesty, the open-mindedness, and the win willingness, which keep me alive and keep me functioning in my professional capacity. What I'll now do is to share a little of a, a little as to what I used to be like, what happened, and what it is like now. You know, I was born in Trinidad to a non-alcoholic family. Uh, neither my mom nor dad are alcoholics. I have a great aunt who is an alcoholic, and uh, you know, I grew up okay attending Catholic schools and churches. I guess at the age of four years, I had an encounter with alcohol at a sister's baptism. I got a hold of scotch, and uh, I don't know what, I don't remember the details, but I knew I was in hospital for a few days for observation. I was an early starter, I imagine. Uh, from that time on, between four to nine, I just had, um, like some of the English people know, some shandy, which is a mixture of beer and uh, sodas. And that was okay. But at the age of 12, I think that's when I started really liking alcohol. I did two things which gave me tremendous opportunities to continue such a practice. One is that I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, and two, I was a Sea Scout, and uh, those gave me tremendous opportunities. I enjoyed the wine, and whenever I went to camp, uh, 
I got a hold of heart liquor and took it with me. And that went on for, for about four or five years until I was about 17 and um, went out of Trinidad. I went to South America to Jamboree and, uh, and that was my first blackout. Uh, I don't remember what happened for about three days until I returned to Trinidad. Um, from there, I, I left Trinidad at 18 and I got to the U.S. and got it to the military and um, had lots of other opportunities there. Um, I was a, a good soldier, really good, uh, outstanding. And uh, But one Saturday evening, pr shortly before going on duty, I um, got a hold of the Mad Dog 2020 and took a drive to the country. And um, I absolutely didn't remember the drive back to Paris. I got to barracks and was getting ready to get go on duty as a military police and somehow or other I loaded the weapon in the arms room and, and fired the weapon. And But being a good soldier, no punitive action was taken at that time and uh, that was okay. They gave me permission to continue. I went on military okay and um, I got discharged and went to college in New York, and that again allowed my disease to progress. Uh, you know, it was from Friday evenings to Fridays and Saturdays to Friday and Saturdays and Sunday, and it alcohol, mainly rum, to alcohol and pot, and that continued throughout my college days. <laughs> uh, then I got to medical school, and you know, I didn't realize what was happening, but I started experimenting with some other drugs. That's where the amphetamines came in. And, uh, and then in internship, uh, I had a run-in with cocaine. You know, what was really happening at this phase of my life was that I was losing or displacing God. You know, I began to feel powerful. I felt as though I was carving out my own destiny. And what was going on there was that there was sort of an inverse um, proportionality between my disease process and my spirituality. You know, during residency, you know, I started using cocaine. And the first attempt was um, freebasing, and I didn't realize what that was going to do to me. You know, the first time I tried it, I really, it didn't snap then. I didn't get hooked. And I thought it would be okay. So I did it that one time. My hair caught on fire. <laughs> and, and my girlfriend um, put it out with a blanket. And, you know, I was able to do okay. The next day, real early in the morning, I got to the barber and got it all shaved off. But uh, nothing happened. happened. I just continued the process and added a variety of assorted um, drugs, you know, including Valium and Codeine and PCP and, and a few others, you know, mushrooms, you know, who na just name it, you know. And then I happened to make it through residency and uh, I got into practice, private practice. And like somebody has mentioned, uh, I guess the guy from Greece yesterday, I thought I had arrived. 
and you know with the two three cars in the garage and you know in a large condo and so all to myself you know the perfect uh, alcoholic with the isolation you know I figured what else did I need in my life and uh, it was just downhill from that point you know I felt at that point that coke was it you know and it just progressed from one stage to the next, from the lines to the cocoa puffs, you know, to the just heating of a pipe to the free basing. And, you know, I thought it was, oh, what a feeling. <laughs> but uh, I got, during this time, several messages. It was like God at that time was, you know, I had constant stimuli, people prodding me to, um, to do something about it. And I thought that they all had problems, you know. I thought that they couldn't fit in, and uh, you know, I think these several sources were trying to direct me, but I didn't um, receive their messages. What happened then was that uh, <laughs> I think my brain was just fried at that po at that point in time, and hence couldn't perceive the incoming stimuli. You know, my performances at hospitals deteriorated to the point that, you know, I just stayed awake all night and um, I was in the perfect field. I was in OBGYN and I had reason to stay awake all night. And I was able to justify that. I always had excuses. You know, I'd be really drowsy in the daytime and, you know, it was because of my um, coxie. I had valley fever and, um, you know, I was really fatigued because of that. But, uh, I just didn't accept, you know, no human, no human power could have done anything about my alcoholism and drug addiction at that point. Um, when I was suspended from hospitals, I thought I'd fight them with a turning on, but that didn't work. Somehow or the other, when I was financially <laughs> bankrupt and uh, spiritually bankrupt, the time came. and. Uh, under pressure from one of the hospitals decided that I'll do something and uh, I got the treatment. Uh, that, was, that was the turning point for me in, in life and living on life, life's terms. You know, it was probably the beginning of a happy existence. I had lived all alone and for a duration. I had a rather short marriage because our personalities just didn't go hand in hand. You know, actually I think the disease was in the making and I just had not recognized. However, you know, getting the treatment got me on a new path. But I had some questions, you know, like, you know, you know what is this AA all about? Um, how long do I need to be in AA, how long do these meetings last? And uh, I was glad that I was prodded by um, actually someone who isn't here, it was Ron Minio at um, Scripps in San Diego. And it was through some really strong prodding that I got to the first IDAA meeting two years ago. You know, I said, and I had excuses then, I didn't have many, I didn't have this, and he said, it doesn't matter what, you just get there. I'm really grateful for having, uh, you know, you you people made me feel comfortable. I don't remember who it was, but at the first meeting, you know, I should. I thought I was different, and I thought it would be impossible for me to get back into the profile area. And somebody told me that just um, 
just get up every day and, and, and kneel, kneel down and pray and, and go to meetings and comb my hair and put mornings together and put afternoons together and then put days together, weeks, months, things, and things began to happen. Uh, some, some, someone here yesterday talked about uh, the rule of tens, and I was really into that. You know, once I got into involved in AA, things snapped. You know, I was doing one to three meetings a day. You know, I was just willing to go to any length. I lived in Bakersfield and drove. Uh, I drove about 240 miles each on weekends to get to sessions, and and did did that for a while, and got got a sponsor, and um, you know, just work with other people. And somehow or the other, um, life began to have some meaning for me. Uh, you know, that, the, that was my spiritual awakening. You know, at that point, I was able to, to do, feel, and believe things which I couldn't do before on my own strength. You know, I'm really grateful that God came back in my life, you know. I basically knew that there was God, but I didn't have time to communicate with him. You know, what has happened since then is that I've lost lots of material possessions, you know, a couple condos, and but in its place, I've regained some um, spiritual ones. You know, I've been able to make friends, I've been able to develop lots of interpersonal relationships. You know, I've been able... I've been granted um, free gifts. I've been given the gifts of love and tolerance and, and um, relationships with others, including my sponsor. And today, when things go bad, I can get on the phone and call my sponsor. And you know, it's great to see people from my home group, the home professional group here present at this meeting in the audience. And um, Rick and Michelle, we belong to um, the same home group in San Diego. And I can get on the phone and call these people, and they help me out in rough times. I call my sponsor, and he says things like, "Did you make your bed today? And did you did you get on your knees and pray? Do you have any calluses on your knees?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and these are the things that help me. And occasionally, I can laugh through rough times. You know, this past year has been a lot. There has been some despair and calamity and financial. Um, ruin but this program has been teaching has been preparing me for all of that uh, primarily primarily through you know going to meetings um, having a sponsor working the steps and um, help helping other people you know you know how basically could I come to terms with the, the despair and failure and basically it's just working through the steps of the program you know, this, this program has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. Um, it just really basically prepared me for life. And today, I live a happy, meaningful, and what I consider productive life, which is managed primarily by God, my sponsor, and people in the program. And for that, I'll be eternally grateful. Thanks for having me here, and thanks for asking me to speak. And I've been rather fortunate, you know, they asked me to share this session, and I've been fortunate in that I know two out of the three people here from previous meetings. And now I'll have my good friend, um, Mary, come up. 
I'm Mary Margaret, and I am an alcoholic. Is the hospital regular generic AA group in Fort Collins, Colorado, USA. And welcome to my opening IDAA of this lady. Shakespeare said, the story of my life is what I was like strength was developed actively in the disease of alcohol with hope cast of characters is simple I play the leading lady Lady Mary Margaret my patron saint of spirituality and is a man and he's Canadian and an anesthesiologist of a Dr. Bill the villain in my play is out cunning Act One. What I was like. I was born December 21st, 1937, in Denver, Colorado, the third born child of a highly educated teacher mother and attorney father. I was her second cesarean section. She had lost her first child as a result of the section, and he was a boy. I was born, I was an elective C section that started in that time. And I, I at least wasn't born onto it, and always have had a happy birth until I finally have a sobriety date that I can now celebrate a different birthday. In when I was born, I was a disappointment to my mother because I was not a boy. And I followed my perfect sister, who has a genius IQ, a photographic memory, and does everything a good daughter does in appropriate, perfect family. Fifteen months after my my brother was born and so I got stuck between a perfect sister and a favorite son brother and life was miserable as it I felt left out from the very beginning I survived by quote-unquote running away from this and there I found as a child my friends the animals and two stories are very significant that set the stage for me as a young baby alcoholic one is the fact that my mother put me on a leash, one of those little harness things, you know, like dogs wear. And she always liked to tell me that she couldn't even hang on to me in that leash. And it's so different from mine, in which I can remember figuring out not only how to get out of it, but how to take it with me and go wherever I went. The other one was my experience doing something that I thought was very helpful and being judged by my actions rather than my intentions. All I was trying to do with these adorable black because that's what my mother did to my brother and for some reason it was appropriate and I can remember that as being a very abnormal reaction and we still don't agree on what I do uh, from that uh, I ended up growing up in as I say in this perfect family we moved from two-story house out to the country where I was given a herd of Suffolk sheep for my boys 4-H project when I was 12 and that is when I decided I was going to, because the veterinarian said that I could probably help these ewes deliver much better sheep have a high dystocia rate they actually 20 is more normal than a normal delivery and he said, with your little hands, you can get it up inside there and you fluid and that feces and that meconium and all that stuff. Because from out of that would come this adorable 
thing, this creature of life, and it would do that bad and well. And I just loved it and took care of the animals. My mother said humans are animals too. She, got didn't, I, she did not approve of my saying I wanted to be a veterinarian. She said, you just, you know, women don't do that. Uh, you're too little, you know, all the negatives, negatives, negatives all the time. But anyway, um, so she too. I had the fortunate opportunity of having a very influential high school biology teacher who challenged I went and did independent study in high school to fall in love with science. I graduated valedictorian class, even though my most significant honor in high school was leadership as a cheerleader and, a, and that, those qualities rather than academic. I made the decision to go to Harvard Medical School because someone told me that it was the best medical country. I don't know who told me, and of course at that time it was not co-educational. So I decided instead to go to one of the schools and landed in Wellesley because it had... I managed to survive the all-girls intellectual library tower for a year, um, and something just wasn't quite right. I missed my men, I missed Colorado, I missed the sunshine. And I transferred my sophomore year midway to Colorado and Boulder and completed my undergraduate pre-med in three years and was admitted to the University of Eight. I was the youngest member of the class, the baby of the class. I've always been the youngest one in my class, youngest one and all that stuff. Anyway, the um, uh, one of two women, a uh, nurse, and she uh, was 15 years older than I, never married and retired early. My first year in medical school was an experience. <laughs> Got to know your classmates real well. I don't know whether, whether he's here or not this morning, but one of them is the secretary of this organization, whom I hadn't seen since I graduated from the International AA Convention in Seattle last year. And that's how I, in medical school, um, formalized, formalized my desire to uh, <laughs> not marry a physician and sex now enters. So I decided to marry the fellow who teased me in the back of the bus on a livestock fishing team way back when I was in, and he was going to be a veterinarian. So my sophomore year in medical school, I lost my virginity to pregnancy and pregnancy to marriage. Interesting. That's my sophomore year in medical school. I delivered my preemie, weighing eight and a half pounds, in January of my junior year. And my first secret was born. I, of course, did not tell my parents I was somebody else in the class and on and on and on. But that was my first secret that I kept for a long time. I was an avid breastfeeder. I can now say I was addicted to breastfeeding. Uh, and got pregnant with my second child. Breastfeeding child was, I was even pregnant until I got kicked because I did not have a period. So my junior year of medical school and my senior year of medical school, I had a toddler and was pregnant again. Most of my professors know me as pregnant. I graduated eight and a half months pregnant in Folsom Field, which is the home of the number one CU Buffalo. And my classmates fought on who was going to deliver me in the middle of the Folsom Field. I said, I'll do the honors if it so happens. However, I did not until Friday the 13th of my internship in Greeley, Colorado. And then I delivered my daughter, and she weighed nine pounds. It was a lucky day for me because that's the day not only did I get a girl, but I got a license, number 14280. And then with this big daughter who slept all night and required a lot of breast milk, 
I now mother said that beer makes milk and when you aren't making enough to drink beer all beer did a lot more than milk and I just loved it and I developed a wonderful I did everything about it everything about it and so that began my taste and my love and my misuse of alcohol my life continued on. Believe it or not, I got pregnant with my third child. Now, this time we did use foam, but, uh, you know, I decided I wasn't always fertile. Anyway, um, we, then, uh, we then moved to Fort Collins. My husband was in vet school. He went out but got back in. One of my favorite degrees is his Ph.D. degree, which I would hard. Subsequently delivered my third child um, and then got pregnant with my fourth child and at that time decided it's time for a tubal ligation. Uh, and at that point in time, I went into private practice, in family practice in Fort Collins, and have been there for 25 years. The next part of Act One is becoming a very successful solo female, female family practitioner in Act Two, what happened? I prescribed diet pills. The physician at CSU Health Center, and now as a result of AA, I'm able to talk about my part, my part in what happened to me. I lost in 83 the MD sponsor of mine, I now can call him a sponsor, in an airplane crash. And he was chief of staff at the time and had been my mentor through all the years in Fort Collins. He had told me to quit prescribing diet pills, that the feds didn't like it, the community didn't like it, and my fellow physicians didn't like it. And I kept saying, oh, but they, they work, they work, they work. And I'm not doing anything wrong. Uh, they really help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To make a long story short, on April Fool's Day in 1984, a grand jury indicted me for prescribing prescription diet pills. My prescription drug of diet, diet pill drug of choice was Preludin. I didn't know till all of what happened to me came down that it was indeed a, a Schedule Three. I didn't even know schedules until. Um, <clears throat> again, I was fighting at the bit and saying, I'm innocent, I've not done anything wrong, I've never prescribed a drug that I didn't feel was correct, and certainly not without a prescription, but the DEA is sly. <laughs> they sent in an FBI undercover agent, she was black, and she said she was a prostitute, visiting the Denver area, her mother in the Denver area, and on her way to Vegas, and she needed diet pills for weight control to keep up with the younger women and she needed sleeping pills because the diet pills kept her awake. She very cleverly manipulated into my office on a busy Monday morning, refusing a physical, initial physical, etc., etc., had the wiretap in her purse. She got me for a prescription for diet pills and sleeping pills on three separate occasions. And for each one of those prescriptions, I received the maximum amount of time and the maximum fine. My first trial was in May of 1984 in the federal court in Denver. And I would like to just say simply that when the feds get a hold of you, my criminal attorney later said the analogy that I've since now really learned very well because it has happened to me, that if they get a hold of you, they will flatten you out. They are the biggest steamroller you can possibly imagine in your life. And once they get you, they won't let you go till they've got you so flat and so lean. And then when they maybe want to let you out, they'll decide, but it'll come very slowly. 
As you now know, this is seven years ago. The first trial ended up in a hung jury, a mistrial. But at this point, the United States Department of Justice invested a lot of money in the sting operation of the diet pill doctor and continued to file charges and the second trial was in Labor Day in September of that year and the judge gave me the maximum sentence of three years in prison and fined me $75,000, $5,000 for During the year of 1984, I found out I didn't have any friends and I didn't have anybody that loved me. And I can now say that I progressed so rapidly with alcoholism. After the conviction and I knew I'd been drinking, I did seek out voluntarily the Colorado Impaired Physicians Group to be admitted because I did not want to be in prison in, with DTs and I knew I I had all the classic symptoms I couldn't get up in the morning without drinking something and therefore I self-committed to Mount Airy Psychiatric Hospital in November of that year, spent a month there and I can truly share with you the only thing I remember is sleeping. I was balanced. No one dealt with my fear, no one dealt I went to prison March 5, 1985, a self-committal, walking in, knowing that I would not come out alive because no one could tell me that it was okay. I, all I knew of prison were just what I'd seen on TV. I had no idea what I was getting into. And it is in prison, and now I am uh, in Act 2, where I now know that nothing in this world happens by mistake and that I was sent there to find out humility and some other very significant things. In prison, the first night, I talked to God because I'd always said, talk to God, but I'd always talked to God. I really had never prayed. And I found out then that I said, if you'll just get that big Texas sun to come up and go down every day, I'd make it. And I lived one day at a time. The calendar in prison, I'd take little X's and move it in order to do that. And that is a whole other story. But as I say, in prison, I learned one day at a time. I learned how to really be honest. Let me tell you, you better be honest. I learned acceptance of all kinds of people. And from there, I survived the one year in prison, got out. During this time, I then asked to get my license back. In, in Colorado, a felony conviction is an automatic revocation of license. I worked for two years to get my license back in Colorado. They then subsequently gave it to me with a lot of stipulations and a lot of requirements, which I was fulfilling. I slipped back into drinking in the progression that alcohol is. And then as a result of a family intervention in January of, of 1990, Act 3 happened. The family intervention resulted as a result of my drinking at a family wedding and making a real fool of myself. And the family intervention was that if I signed a contract with the Colorado Impaired Physicians, they would not report me to the board. I signed a contract with uh, Colorado, went back to Virginia, and there I met my patron saint about Dr. Bill Farley broke my denial, and he broke it in the best way I know, being an honest doctor. I was in that treatment for three months. During that time, the Colorado Board of Medical Examiners found out I was, and they suspended my license. I, they then revoked my license after administrative hearing. 
My current situation is now on appeal in the Colorado courts. They didn't like me. They didn't want me back to practice and a hard time defending being an alcoholic. But in the meanwhile, I'm in AA, and I found my family, and I found my Acceptance is the key to my day. I never just sit still and do nothing. Rather, I do whatever is in front of me to be done. Alcoholic. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. I'd like Martin to share with us. Hello, my name is Martin, and I'm an alcoholic. Very happy to be with you all again. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, <coughs> how the British Doctors Group started, and um, no better way, I think, to start than to remember when I was just a few years out of treatment and pretty fragile and not quite knowing where I was going, um, not much money, and uh, a letter arrived in, uh, at home in York, um, and it had IDAA on it. And to my amazement, it was an invitation to come to one of the IDA letters, um, meetings, and uh, it was from Luke. Um, and I don't think Luke ever realized how grateful I was for that letter, because it made me feel, you know, I was still a worthwhile doctor, and I still could function and, and progress with the help of, of similar, similar people. Um, and I couldn't afford to go at that time, but it was a year or two later that I met Luke, and I've always been grateful to him for that uh, initial help and the friendship which we had later on. Um, he used to send me notes about doctors who were about to arrive in England, uh, and um, I recall some very happy experiences with uh, um, American Canadian doctors who stayed and worked in, in London. Um, and for all that, I'm eternally grateful to Luke. Um, odd things happen, I find, in recovery, um, unexpected things, and people uh, appear in one's life, which sort of certainly have helped me in, in uh, the journey in sobriety. And some of them are quite unexpected. Um, one odd thing had happened. Um, I was in a back street in Soho in London, um, a very sleazy street, um, and I wasn't there for any unlawful purposes, as my friends believed. Um, but there was a, an AIDS meeting in a grotty little underground room, um, and I was just approaching the entrance, the, these stairs, and I heard, um, there was a taxi pulled up, and I heard an American voice say, is this St. Patrick's School? So I, um, I caught up with him, and I said, are you going to an AA meeting? And he said, yes. He said, my name is Jim West. I'm a surgeon from Chicago. And I said, well, I'm Martin Kay. I'm a doctor from, a general practitioner from Yorkshire. And we shook hands. And I noticed he was rather, not sort of, a bit ill-shaven, and he looked tired and worn, a bit disheveled. And I said to him, very stupidly, um, have you been in AA long? And he, he looked at me and said, oh, hell, he said, about 26 years, I think. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was reduced to, to size. 
And uh, he said, and you, how long have you been around? And I said, well, I think it's just two years. And he said, oh. So that was how I met Luke, uh, met, met um, Jim. And I'm always grateful to that accidental meeting in a back street in Soho. And um, we were recalling that uh, meeting um, uh, yesterday. Um, and it was for me a mem memorable meeting. Uh, and uh, he did say one other thing. He said, where's your doctor's meeting? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> we haven't got a doctor's meeting. But I do believe that So it just gave me that little idea. Well, it was time we had a doctor's meeting. So I'm grateful to Jim for that as well. Um, the meeting was memorable because there was um, one of Churchill's secretaries there. And um, she subsequently did very, very well and, and is now, I think, sits in the House of Lords with her husband. She married a, a lord. Um, and uh, that was a memorable meeting. Um, and then a sort of... The years went by and a sort of bombshell hit us in 1976 with the arrival of um, Bill and Stella. Um, Bill arrived, I never, he rang me up and said he wanted to see me and Seamus, who helped me a lot in the early days of Doctor's Group, and uh, he um, wanted to meet me and, uh, in London, and uh, I, I got a feeling that, you know, it was important that I should go. He didn't sort of accept no very easily. Um, so he mentioned Simpsons in the Strand, which is a well-known restaurant full of Americans. Um, all eating roast beef, and um, he said, well, I'll see you in Simpsons, and I said, well, what do you look like, Bill? Oh, he said, I just look like an American, and he did, he did. He had a, <laughs> he had a huge camera, <laughs> and before we could say anything, he said, get in that corner, under that light there, I want a photograph of you, and Seamus was very shy, and I'm very shy, we sort of stood like zombies in the corner, had our photographs taken. And that was how I met Bill. Now, we had just started a, um, a, a meeting at that time, a small meeting, and Bill complained like mad because he said, you're so damned anonymous, I couldn't find you, um, and I want all your telephone numbers and addresses. And we were so, you know, we were horrified. <laughs> and one or two sort of refused. And Bill really did create quite a turmoil. But I was grateful for that because it was he that really got us going and got us coming to, to, to the States regularly and, and uh, that was how I got to Morristown on, on several occasions and that was the beginnings really of my regular visits backwards and forwards and Bill in his own, uh, own particular way was a great, great help to us. Um, the meeting, the doctor's meeting really started with tours. Uh, one who wanted um, lots of scientific knowledge and he wanted to know all the latest papers on alcoholism and I had a feeling that you know it wasn't the way to, to recover. I was very well involved in AA at that time and Jack used to come to the REC which is a rather sort of elegant gentleman's club. It was a gentleman's club, it isn't now. It's the ladies and gentlemen's club. You'll be pleased to know. And um, um, the um, um, it was nice and warm and comfortable and there was a nice log fire and you had tea and crumpets and Jack used to come and he felt, he felt at home and protected and, and he liked it and, but he also liked talking about the latest scientific paper on alcoholism and this went on for about several months 
and he really enjoyed his trumpets and his tea and his log fire. And when I said, look, Jack, you're not really getting anywhere. You're asking the same questions over and over and over again. So why don't we collect one or two people I know in London who are doctors? And then we'll, we'll have a little meeting together. And he was horrified because he didn't want any doctors. He didn't want any intrusion. And um, he didn't, he left and he found an AA meeting with, I think, two people. And he felt happy there and he's sober, but he, he never, that was the end of Jack, really, from the doctor's point of view. But we did have those six and they all came. And I began to find that they, they all always came back again. Uh, and some travelled long distances to join us, and I realised that there was, there was a need for that sort of meeting. Um, we weren't, although we were all involved in AA, we didn't, um, we called ourselves an independent meeting. Uh, Max Blatt was helping us at that time, he was a pioneer in alcoholism in, in Europe, um, and Max felt an open, a sort of forum as a springboard into AA might be more effective. Because for many years he'd been sending people, doctors, to, to AA and, and, and finding they, they didn't go or they, they fell out. And he felt a supportive group might be, be more beneficial. He wanted to, to spread the net wide. So that was how we started. Uh, shortly after the, the dentist joined us and they were very active and they'd been a great help with their interventions. Um, and gradually we grew. Um, about one every two years a new meeting started. So we now have about, we have 11 groups in, in the United Kingdom, two in Ireland, um, and that's been a, a help. We write letters, monthly letters, just to remind people of the various meetings and conventions. Um, and we feel it's worthwhile making that contact whether people want it or not. And we've had one or two uh, incidences where, where people have not appeared for six years sometimes and they've reappeared in distress and they said, you know, we've got your letters and we feel so guilty. Uh, so whatever the motive, it's, whether it be guilt or whatever, they come back again. Um, I was doing a surgery one morning and, and uh, the nurse receptionist said, There's a, somebody wants to see you urgently, it doesn't look too good. And this doctor had actually booked into an hotel down in Brighton, intending to commit suicide, and he'd gone through his things, and he found one of my letters reminding him of a meeting, and he saw the address, and he thought, well, I'm not far away, and he arrived that morning, um, and um, survived to, to tell the tale, and is still around. And, uh, so I, I believe in, in reminding people whether they want to be reminded or not, um, and it does work, and we have had some um, rewarding ex experiences. Um, in 77 we came to New Jersey and Max Blatt came with us. And I always remember that occasion because he, he wanted to make sure he could get to the synagogue on the Friday evening. And we arranged this and he met the rabbi. And it was quite a long walk for him. And we were at this meeting, and he was fascinated, he was thrilled. And he kept looking around and saying, couldn't we get them all in a circle? We can talk better that way. There's only about 200 people there. 
but um, he, he, and I kept saying, Max, it's getting dark, you'll have to go. And then he looked around, he got quite cross, and he said, no, he said, I'm not going. This is too good to miss. And he still says that was one of the most inspirational uh, meetings of his, of his life. Um, he's still well, by the way, and, and he's working hard. He's over 80 now, and I know that's young for some recovering alcoholics and, and helpers of alcoholics, um, and um, he sends his greetings to you. Um, we find with, when, when doctors disappear, it's always a bad sign, and I'm sure you know that, and, and they usually become isolated. I think, first of all, they uh, go on pills, sedatives, and then start drinking again. So we do try and contact people if we feel we're losing, losing touch with them. Um, we've done one or two things which are useful. I think we've done two, three questionnaires now. And over a period of five years, we found, uh, I think on one occasion, 65% were alive and well and working. And on a later questionnaire, it was about um, 80%, I think it was. Um, so that made us feel it was all, all worthwhile. Um, we've had a lot of help with the family group, which we started early on for families and relations. Um, and um, it's been quite a rewarding experience because where sometimes you approach a doctor or try and encourage a doctor to come and he doesn't, if you could get the, the, the wife into the family group sooner or later, the doctor thinks, well, now, what is this lady doing in the West End on a Saturday night? Uh, and why did she come back so enthusiastic and happy? And sooner or later, the doctor says, I think I'll go along with her. And that's one way we found quite helpful. And there's always been an enormous help, actually, in, in helping to restore family, family unity. Um, and that grows. London meeting, we have 30 to 40. Um, alcoholics and about 20, 20 to 30 families. More recently, in the last two or three years, we've had a, a guest night to try and let the establishment know that you know, doctors can be treated and they do recover. Um, and so we, the first time we invited all the editors, medical press, um, and we just had a small meeting to share our experiences and then let, we let them do the, do the talking. Um, uh, more recently, we've been allowed to use the Royal College of Physicians for clout, a bit more prestige, uh, and we invite the presidents of the colleges. Uh, sometimes they turn up, sometimes they don't. But on the whole, we usually get 50 or 60 people there, and I think that's a worthwhile experience. Uh, at least they go away saying, you know, these doctors do get better, and that's what we, we that's the message we want to, to, to spread. Um, we do try to use doctors around the country as contacts when we get a, uh, some call, telephone call. Um, we can usually make direct contact with, with an alcoholic doctor. Um, as, um, in, uh, we've followed Doug Talbot's ideas as far as we can. Uh, and that, that seems to, to work fairly well. Um, I just mentioned uh, the General Medical Council. Um, it, it was just a disciplinary council, 
but they do have a health committee now, so most sick doctors go to the health committee, and that's an improvement. And in recent years, um, they know about the British Doctors Group, and they normally, when they discharge a doctor, they make a contract and they say, one, one condition will be you attend the British Doctors Group, and AA usually. Um, so that's a, a big step forward, because before that, doctors got no help at all from the GMC. Um, and uh, um, at least we can get them into good treatment centres now. We have a good relationship with them, and um, I, I recall the first time I went to support a doctor who uh, had been in trouble, and say he'd been attending the doctor's meeting for about a year regularly, and it was very formal and very frightening, and recently I went along and I uh, walked into this like a courtroom, um, and I noticed one or two of them were actually waving at me. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we are winning, slowly. Um, so anyhow, that's all I want to say, except um, we do have an annual convention in Portsmouth, which is on the south coast of England. It's near where Bill went to see, to read the, the, um, um, the uh, tombstone about the, the drunk uh, guardsman who drank too much pot um, at Chichester. So it would be, a, uh, be an interesting meeting, be a nice meeting, I hope. And we would like to see, you know, any of you there. It's always a great uh, joy to have you there, and, and you do add so much to the meetings. Um, Hugh, who I think is there, I think he has some booking forms. Uh, if any of you felt a bit delusional this morning on the upper floors and thought you heard bagpipes playing, uh, you're not delusional, it was Hugh <laughs> warming, warming his bagpipes in preparation for a, a later show today. Um, so, um, as, having mentioned Hugh, I think I ought to mention Craig is somewhere around. He's come from, from England with me, there he is over there. Uh, and Betty might be there, no? Um, so I hope to see you again in uh, a year's time, uh, maybe with a few more English Scotsmen with their bagpipes, and maybe the odd Irishman as well. Thank you all very much. I'd like to thank you, Martin, for your very valuable contribution. Hope we'll be with you someday. Uh, I'd now like to introduce Eva R. from British Columbia. Hi, I'm Eva. I'm an alcoholic, and I guess a benzodiazepine queen. <laughs> no, I thought actually when somebody said yesterday they were a drug disposal unit, I thought that had been me. Um, it's uh, it's really an honor uh, getting up here. It's it's difficult to get up, uh, mostly because what do you say when everyone who's been up has said what you had to say. Um, I think, for me, um, that's what keeps me coming back to AA. I've, I've been in AA for 10 years, um, and then I uh, did a full tilt uh, down, I don't know what to call it, <laughs> debut on pills. And then after that, finally got into a recovery. and. Uh, 
I've only really been in recovery then for about three years, and to this very day, I still am blown away every time someone says something that I feel or I think. Um, I spent, I guess, so many years in isolation and hadn't thought about it. Uh, that I feel like I'm constantly sort of like coming out of a fog every time I hear someone else say something that I can relate to. And yet, the, I guess the key thing is, is everyone says something I can relate to. Um, I wanted to say that something very special happened for me this morning um, when Sita uh, said that we'd finish with the Lord's Prayer. And at my initial old self sort of went, oh, the Lord's Prayer. Because I was brought up Catholic and uh, with drunken parents, and we went to church drunk or sober. Our money got given to the church. We had holes in our shoes, this kind of stuff. And anything that reminds me of what all of that it really upsets me. And I can remember uh, when I was quite young, there was a faith I had in God. And, and then I just totally lost it because I couldn't understand how God would want us to give our grocery money to him. Um, I couldn't understand any of that. So, but there had been a time when there was overwhelmed by this huge church and, and it was such a, it was really was a pure loving time. And it was funny as we reached across and held hands and said the Lord's Prayer, all of a sudden I was that kid again and I felt safe. Like that's how it should have been. I don't know why. I, I just wanted to share that. It's, uh, it still blows me away when something can happen that touches my heart and my soul. So I uh, <coughs> drank as an alcoholic from the word go. Um, I was brought up on bathtub gin. And uh, years later, from a very chaotic background, uh, moved into town. And I was 16 and looked 20-something. I thought this was great. I went out to bars with uh, men, went into bars. I thought it was great I could get in. And in those days, uh, you know, if you could drink uh, zombies, you know, some of the bars would say, well, if you could drink three zombies and walk, you know, we'll give you a fourth. It was no problem for me. Uh, <clears throat> I also never got seduced under the influence of alcohol because the guys I was with thought this was cute and funny to keep me drinking. Um, thinking, I'm sure in their minds, that this will be a fun night, except they always passed out and I was still drinking. <laughs> I had to fake being drunk to get laid. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's where I started from, and it seemed like my only self-esteem in life was that I could drink. And uh, I, I spent, well, years drinking. Um, years suffering, and I didn't know what it was about, um, but knew uh, that something was wrong. And I, I started out when I was around eight. Our family got separated, and it's like I closed off the day I walked into the house and found out that we were splitting up and uh, we were being pulled away and going from everything that I'd thought was so wonderful. And life just sort of became a nightmare, and I turned off. The one thing I did in that, though, was I decided I would never trust the people that were around because I saw how they lived. 
I saw what their world was, and it was ugly. Uh, there was nothing pretty in that world. My real father was an alcoholic, and I think he was crazy. But he could paint some beauty. And certainly something that wasn't there was any beauty. I was disgusted, ashamed, um, and I decided I would never do anything uh, following their life. And I just closed off. It's really only been in the last couple of years that I've realized, you know, I was still doing that and I didn't need to anymore. Um, but, you know, those things you decide when you're that young, it takes a long time before you ever, um, or that, um, or what's going on. Um, and I guess also what, something that came from there was I always heard afterwards how my father was no good, except the problem was I did love him. And I guess I've spent my whole life thinking, whatever's going on, I can't trust, because I did come home one day, and what I thought was a beautiful world wasn't. And the only things I ever loved were put down once we left there. And the things I loved were was my father, my brother, and I loved going to school. And uh, everything humanly possible was done to keep me out of school, but I, I kept going. And I think all that kept me alive those years, I did start overdosing when I was about nine. I didn't really know how to kill myself, or I guess fortunately. God, but did I learn? <laughs> Anyways, um, and I guess, you know, I realize it, it's, uh, I'm very, the only other thing I've loved once we've, I've gone on in my life was I loved getting back to some of my feelings. And the only other thing I've loved is AA. And I still, in a lot of ways, I keep that separate from so many people in my world. And it, you know, when I was realizing this morning, it's not, I'm not ashamed I'm an alcoholic. Um, but I keep AA kind of a, a, sort of in a way a secret, except to very special people, because I don't want something else that I love put down. And it, it's not a, um, a professional fear, it's in a love put down because then it can. But something I've learned in this program uh, is that really you can't take. And it was just kind of a nice awakening again uh, to realize that, yeah, it couldn't be taken away because it's in. I wanted to get up here and, and uh, be a bit of a hoot, but uh, anyways, um, I think what happened for me, everyone else that it seems like you all sobered up after you got through medical school. Um, a problem for me, and what sort of led to the title for my speech, State Dependent Medical Training, was I went to uh, medical school on a drunken kind of thing <coughs> in my mid, when I was about 32. And I really only went because someone said one day, well, maybe you should go become a doctor. And now I knew there was something wrong in my life, and I went, well, maybe that's it. And they all helped me with letters, and, and I was a really nice person, a hard worker, and I mean, I was a, a great, lots of personality and everything. And I got into a medical school when, in Canada anyways, if you were over 25, a lot of schools wouldn't even touch you. So, but I did get in someplace, but never could figure out why. And uh, in, out in Ontario, um, now I didn't get accepted in Calgary, where I would have liked to have gone, and I was always mad, and I thought the guy that interviewed me was a real prick. Something was really wrong with that guy. 
you know, and it's only like now, 10, 15 years later. You know, I went, I was carrying a flask of Manhattans with me. <laughs> you know, did he smell my Manhattans? You know, like, at the time I thought I'd done such a wonderful interview, there was a problem with him. Um, but now years later, when I can smell booze on other people, I go, did he smell Manhattans? And, well, first of all it was, did he smell Manhattans and hold that against me? That I could drink and he couldn't? And, but now years later, of course, I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Anyways, I, uh, it was great to go to a medical school where the average age was 19 and I was 32. Um, it was a great place to go because I really was quite different and isolating was really easy. It was also easy to become a drunk. I, I was in a room of 19-year-olds who had made it. They'd gotten 90-something percent averages in first year and they got into medical school and they were 19. And a lot of them were drunks. You know, many of them ended up arrested, etc., during the course of medical school. And it was so easy to go to all these parties and impress people with my drinking. And they would be wowed by this. Um, and over the years, people thought I had a, an absolutely wonderful sense of humor, real courageous gal, didn't let anybody shit on, shit on me kind of stuff. And uh, they'd talk to me, well, what did you do this weekend? And I'd go, hey, nothing, man, I just laid around. And they'd go, you are so laid back. You are really something. And. <laughs> Occasionally, I, you know, I'd go to the odd person's house in the day and I'd say, hey, this is special, let's... And then and afterwards they'd go, you are so laid back. And I just, I was at home trying to commit suicide practically on earth. Because what was happening to me that I, uh, that no one else really knew, and in fact I am one of those people, I never was accused of being drunk until after I sobered up and actually laughed from inside once almost fell off the chair and they said, we're cutting her off. And I was drinking club soda at the time. Um, but what happened is I was drinking all the time. I was at home and uh, it wasn't so lonely if I had a drink. And then it got uh, that I was drinking so much that I would wake up mornings for an exam and I had no memory of the night before. And then I went, hmm, and got so nervous I started to drink. And then my memory came back. And I was um, the ninth top student in a medical class of 110 at this time. And I learned about state-dependent learning. If I, was, if I drank a 26er the night before studying, I would have almost a full 26er in the morning before I went to school. Um, I was uh, on an average evening either going through about three of those giant things of wine or a 26er plus a bottle of wine and I was getting up and by the time I went to school in the morning I put back a good 20 ounces. Um, <clears throat> and everyone just thought I had the greatest sense of humor and I was so bright. I got a scholarship as the most promising clinician. Uh, <clears throat> So I was leading this life, and the reason I had just laid back and done nothing on the weekend is because my specialty was to get up, have a cup of coffee, 
because I've never given up my cup of coffee. And then I'd drink. And then I would pass out. I'd get up and have a coffee and try to drive to a liquor store because, hey, I haven't been drinking. Hey, and I always felt so good about myself because I never uh, drank and drove. Uh, I can't believe it. Anyways, finally at one point, I really was going through a lot of depression. And uh, they'd talk about people coming to the hospital with hepatitis and they'd go, oh, another He drank too much. And I had enough medical knowledge to know that, you know, some people's livers are just going to turn on them. So finally, I went to my GP. I'm drinking a fair amount. And um, I'm not an alcoholic. I've always been a fun time gal. And you don't know how. (laughs) I sort of have to keep that part of me secret here because the people I'm in school with and the props, they suck. They are so straight ass. So I'm sort of keeping it to myself. And this is what I'm saying to myself the whole time. These people are so straight ass, you know. And I I said, uh, uh, I need some help getting off the booze. Not because I'm an alcoholic, but I was afraid I would turn jaundiced and someone might confuse me for an alcoholic. (laughs) And that was the only reason I quit. Um, And... uh, I mean, I had to actually quit twice. Uh, well, I had to quit quite a few times. Um, and finally, uh, I got referred to this psychiatrist who was this big, huge guy, and his last name was Down. He used to practice in Victoria. And I, at the time, was working with a doctor, Death, in rehab, and I was seeing a psychiatrist whose name was Down, and I just sort of thought, there's not much left. Anyways, this guy really was great. Um, He scared the shit out of me because he was big. And he used to keep saying, look, if you're drinking, we're not doing therapy because you can't do therapy when you're drinking. And I used to get really pissed off. And so, okay, I would not have anything to, if I had a three o'clock appointment, I wouldn't drink after one. (laughs) You know, I can remember when I used to sit in waiting rooms to a marriage therapist drinking and they never discussed my drinking. So this guy I thought was a bit of a twit. But anyways, uh, it, you know, in retrospect, I just go, that's what I thought not drinking was. I, had, I didn't have a drink in my hand, so what is this man complaining about? Anyways, uh, finally he sort of said, I really think you should go to AA, and I didn't want to go to AA because, uh, you know, AA was going to be these terrible hair that was half falling out, missing teeth, old coats with vomit on them and uh, pissing their pants and, (laughs) you know. And I realized afterwards, I was expecting to see people who looked the way I felt inside. And uh, I think that's the only way I can understand it now. I was looking to see people who, anyways, he got me to an alcohol and drug counselor and I was so blown away that this woman was a volunteer and talking to me. She spent numerous sessions with me and afterwards she said she fell off a chair. She'd never met anyone who, and uh, was totally unfazed by it. And as she's sitting there, and at, by that time I was drinking of milligrams of Valium, it was just, uh, uh, and I was carrying on. Anyway, she said she thought I should go to AA, that maybe I shouldn't be drinking. And I, I said, oh, okay, I, yeah, okay, I can see that. I'll just, sure, I can go without drinking. And as somebody else said, how long do I have to quit drinking for? 
what, a month? And she goes, um, okay, okay, six weeks. And then finally I got up to two months and she's still humming and hawing. And then I got up to three months, the ultimate offer. And she finally said, well, let's not talk about that. Let's think of it as a, a day at a time. And I went, aha, that's the message. I only have to quit for three months. So the woman I ended up talking to on the phone was actually getting a 10-year cake the night I w went to my first meeting so she couldn't go to a meeting with me. And all I could think, and she said to me about this meeting I was going to, there were going to be people there who were five years sober, a year sober, a day sober, 20 years sober. You know, someone else said they were so impressed it gave them such a sense of hope. Not this girl. Do you want to know what I saw? Ooh, they must be really sick if they have to quit for 10 years. I only have to quit for three months. <laughs> and I saw the 10 steps and the 12 traditions, or the 12 steps and the 10 <laughs> traditions. <laughs> oh, but I saw all this, I read it over, and I heard people up there saying like, you know, they've been in the program for five years and they're still on the fourth step. And I read it over and I went, I can understand it all. I can understand it all. No, that's why I only have to be here for three months. <laughs> and that's how I started into sobriety, was these poor, stupid people, what can I do to help them? <laughs> you know, in retrospect, now, you know, I really understand it. But you see, I could get into this spiritual stuff because I'd done macrobiotics. And as everybody else, I did everything humanly possible in to find spiritual peace. And the ultimate was when I got into macrobiotics. Yes, I was making futons myself, laying them on the floor so I could have spiritual unity with the universe. I was only eating certain things. I was weeping in a health food store because I didn't know I hadn't eaten for so many days, but I was still drinking margaritas. And I liked macrobiotics because there seemed to be a little space. And they got into spirituality, and I got into spirituality. And I really got into margaritas. <laughs> and the ultimate, and you know, that's helped me get through the whole rest of this program, is people saying, you know this whole thing, how far will you go for uh, some sobriety? I always think back to myself. For what I thought was going to be sanity a long time ago, I spent two hours in a cooking class learning how to macrobiotically slice an onion so that while I sliced it, I could be one with the universe. When you have gone that low, and that's how bad I was, I was looking for anything. I was, that's how far I went. Uh, and I finally got into AA. It just changed my world. You know, I'm not alone anymore. Uh, one of the things, of course, that happened, uh, I've started knowing a bit of what spiritual peace is. Uh, I still have a hard time describing feelings. If something's a nice, mellow feeling, I still will say things like, man, this is just like 75 of Valium. But I say it to people in the medical field, and they look at me and they, go, they laugh. She's so cute. Um, <laughs> and uh, they laugh, and, and they'll say patronizing things like, as if you could ever know. <laughs> but anyways, 
uh, and it is really quite a quite a giggle at times but I'm realizing that's all I know for feelings before I came into AA um, I'll say stuff to people like that's a line or two of coat uh, ooh this is like halcyon um, uh, you know I mean that's how I describe my feelings and I'm just starting now to know about them but I guess when I said state-dependent medical training, one of the problems when you sober up in the middle of medical school is um, much of what I learned was in blackouts or in altered states. And when I sobered up, I didn't have much knowledge. And so literally, I had to go through medical school uh, when I sobered up. I had to cover everything because some courses I literally hadn't. But I got through and... Uh, grace of God and I got uh, turned on to some very wonderful people I got through then I came back out here to face my family and to do a residency in family medicine and I bottomed out on pills the problem there being that once again so much of what I was doing um, I didn't remember it so when I finally got sent to a treatment center and uh, cleaned up I had to come back and I had to learn everything I was supposed to have known in the residency Right now, um, with the wonderful thing happening of the college saying I had to tell everyone that I was an alcoholic, I could only work in an institution, blah, 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 blah. I went out and did that and got hired by a mental institution in the uh, outside of Vancouver. And I ended up being on probably the two top-notch units in the place with two people who knew I was an alcoholic and they were just wonderful to me. Uh, just truly wonderful. And uh, uh, through their encouragement, their support, and their sitting and arguing with me, I'm now doing a residency in psychiatry. Um, and it's, it is, it's wonderful. It's like being born again, you know? I feel like I'm doing something this time that I honestly want to do. And it's really the first time that I'm clean and sober. And when I don't know something, I know I just don't know it. I don't have to say to myself, well, maybe you did see this before in another drug era. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I've always lived with that uncertainty, and now it's a nice feeling to know from day to day what I've seen, what I've done, who I've talked to, etc. And I think the nice part of it, of what's changing, is I never talked to any doctors by their first names. And this year, somehow getting through this year, and uh, there's been a lot of experiences, I've actually started to call a few by their first names and talk to them like I'm just one of them. Um, so it is, it's uh, wonderful to be here with you all. And uh, the fact that they're just first names uh, and then initials or something, it's, um, it's wonderful for me to say to somebody, oh, hi, Jim not high doctor so-and-so, feeling like I wasn't one of anything that was going on. It's nice to be a part, and uh, I guess all I can ever say is uh, I'm just eternally grateful. Thank you very much.